Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. Around the world, more than 4 billion people live in cities. That's just over 50% of the global population. The United Nations projects that by 2050, it will be 68%. In Canada, 82% of people live in urban areas, and that number is on the rise. Alongside the growth in urbanization is a growth in the number of problems that cities face, along with their residents. The list is long and getting longer. Housing, transit, policing, parks, infrastructure, the drug poisoning crisis, safe streets for pedestrians, cyclists, and motorists, and more. Tackling numerous and overlapping urban challenges requires political courage and a commitment to doing things differently. To understand just what that entails, we ask, what can be done about the biggest issues facing our cities? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Gil Penalosa, founder of 880 Cities and former mayoral candidate in the city of Toronto. Let's start with housing because it's a, a common urban issue across the country across throughout the world. Uh, but few politicians are talking seriously about how we can get to the root of the problem, but you've discussed just that. So I wanna address uh, how we can tackle the housing problem in a different sort of way. In particular, a couple of issues that you've brought up, uh, looking at single family housing in a different way, the use of city land and the idea of a public builder. Can you take us through your vision of how we can address the housing crisis? Well, I think there is a huge housing crisis almost in every city in Canada and many other cities around the world. But specifically in the case of Canada, um, I think it has been a failure of leadership from the elected officials. Uh, let me give you an example of Toronto. I, I, I recently ran for mayor of Toronto. I'm not a, a typical politician. This is the first time and probably last that I'm running. Uh, but it was successful in the sense that since the day I registered, when I probably had a hundred votes from family and friends, till the elections was a hundred days and I had a hundred thousand votes, which is really high uh, in, in, in the greater Toronto area, more than any mayor in any of the other municipalities of it except Toronto. This is incredible, but 80% of the land of Toronto is zoned for single family housing, single family housing. Uh, so that is the biggest issue. We need to, uh, why is it single family housing? Because it's exclusionary. It's not allowing people. So everyone, the whole city has built sidewalks and parks and schools and libraries and water and sewage, but only very few people actually have access to them. So what I suggested was four pillars in my housing policy. The first is that this 80%, we should allow people to divide, not only allow, but promote, incentivize people to divide their homes. This can be done very, very fast. Uh, so we should allow people to divide those homes up to four units. And also, if anybody wants to build a new one, they should be able to build up to three or four stories uh, with six units on each one. Uh, this would be great for many people. One, the owners. We have a lot of people that are uh, empty nesters that they want to age in place, but the house is too big and it's too expensive. So if they can split it in four, leaving one of them and rent out the other three, then all of a sudden they're going to have an income for life, for life. So it's great for the owners. 
Who's going to be doing those thousands and thousands of renovations? Small contractors. So we would create thousands of jobs of small and medium-sized contractors. And the main benefit is for the renters that now they would have possibility to rent in all of the neighborhoods of the city. So this is something that should be done as of right and immediately. The second pillar is on all the transit corridors. In all of the transit corridors, as of right, people should be able to densify from five to 12 or 13 stories. Uh, and then uh, the third is in the land that is owned by the city. Then we should do 100% affordable or deep affordable. And the fourth one is where we have shopping centers or power centers, we should be able to zone those one by one because each one is very different. The others have been as of right, but on this one, it should be zoned each one and not building by building, but the whole area as of right. In a city like Toronto, with these four actions, we will open up about 1.9 million units. And we only need about 10% of those to solve the current crisis. We probably need another 10% to solve the housing for the next 50 years. So there is plenty of land to do it. Uh, and if we did something similar in the other municipalities in the greater Toronto area, we would have more than enough space to house, satisfy all of the housing needs for the next 50 or 100 years. We, from the point of view of sustainability, everywhere, we should build all of the new housing in the existing footprint. We should not take one single meter of agricultural land, not one single meter of the green belt. So this is something that not only would work in Toronto, but it could work in any municipality in Canada. Uh, I was recently writing about Canada's immigration plan and bringing about 1.45 million newcomers in the next three years. And one of the points I was raising was housing was, look, if we're going to bring in newcomers, we ought to be able to ensure that they have somewhere to live, not to invite them into a country where they're having a, going to have a hard time finding a home. So, you know, your point about scaling up fast is, I think, an important one because we have a housing crisis for those who are here, but we also need to make sure we've got somewhere uh, for, for new folks who are coming. But it does bring up the question of scale. I mean, do you think that that scale can be achieved uh, quickly with the, with the contractor capacity we have now? Uh, do you think that folks can get trained quickly enough to be there to, to do the work? Or is that going to be a new challenge? No, it, it can be that. I don't think that would be a big issue. For example, the fastest one that I call the renovation revolution could be done immediately. It's really very simple because it's the houses that already exist, but splitting them in four units or five units or three units or as many units as you want. So that a, a medium-sized contractor can do it. This is not high tech. Uh, so, so, so that could be done very fast. So, and, and the other thing is that the buildings, when I'm talking about doing buildings on all of the arterials between five and 12 stories, based on the width of the road. So if, if the width of the road is 30 meters, then you do 30 meters high. If you it's 50, you do 50. I'm not proposing anything above 12 or 13 stories, mm -hmm. none, for many reasons. First, I think that the quality of life in lower buildings is much better. Second, I think that the one of the most important things of sustainability is to build, to build buildings that will be there for 100 or more years, not that buildings that are gonna be torn down. Uh, and third, because it can be done very fast. And also you could have a lot of variety 
because you could have a lot of mid-sized developers doing all of these buildings and not just the few gigantic developers doing the very tall ones. So I I, I think we, we, we have all of the elements to be able to do it. Well, I'm very glad you brought up the idea of the question of, of density. And I'm particularly glad you mentioned the Greenbelt and agricultural land. You know, part of the challenge that cities face right now is that they're under the thumb of provinces to some extent. And in some instances, that can be extremely limiting or counterproductive. So I'm thinking of Ontario, where at the moment it's extraordinarily tense. Uh, Doug Ford's housing bill has come in for criticism from cities as a public giveaway to developers. Lots of people criticizing the the idea that that we have to develop the green belt. Um, you know, do you think that that implies that cities need more independence from provinces? What do you do when Doug Ford comes along and opens up the green belt and Markham says, we're going to go broke because we can't afford to build out that infrastructure and plus we don't need to in the first place? Well, first, I think that what Doug Ford is doing with the green belt is absolutely horrible. Mm -hmm. Why am I saying this? Because a lot of the land of the green belt was agricultural land. It was never going to be built. And in the past two or three years, some of the biggest developers, the higher donators to the uh, uh, conservative party, they started buying a lot of this land. They are not they are not into agricultural business, but they were buying land for agriculture. Why they were buying land for agriculture if they have no business in agriculture? They say you buy a land for $100 million for agriculture. Once the premier with the magic wand says, this land now is not only for agriculture, it can be urbanized. Now that land is worth $1 billion. So you multiply by 10 the value of the land. So that is. Second, Doug Ford has been uh, mixing something that has nothing to do with each other. That is the green belt and the housing crisis. Nothing. Because then he's telling people we are in a housing crisis. Yes, we're in a housing crisis. But the solution is not to go to the Greenbelt. So he's making it this way so that he can appear as solving housing crisis by building the Greenbelt. But the reality is that the previous Ontario government, the Liberal government of Kathleen Wynne, and before her McGinty had all of the tools to have developed the greater Toronto area properly. The only thing that was done very, very well, which was McGinty, was to create the green belt and to also create the places to grow. That was very well done. I wish they had gone one stop further and that McGinty would have purchased that land that maybe would have come up with a plan uh, and have some financial bonds uh, and the province could be paying them over 30, 40 years to purchase because if all of that land was owned by the public, then it would not have been urbanized. But since it was not, but nevertheless, just having the green belt and the places to grow was really good. But other than that, him and Kathleen Wynne were a total failure. Also, at the city level, the municipalities, they want, the same ones that now are complaining to Ford because he's setting up the, the rules, they have failed. They have failed. We have a huge housing crisis and they have failed. The reality is that it's not only Toronto, but all of the municipalities in the greater Toronto area, you go to Mississauga and Brampton and Markham and Oshawa, all of them have similar single family housing, totally exclusionary, 
they are not densifying that. And also they are not even densifying the, the, the transportation corridors. So I think that when the municipalities have failed, when we have a huge housing crisis, then it's a fertile moment for someone like Doc Ford to come in and do these horrible things. So I think it's, it's important to say, not only he has to do things right, but also he has to do the right things. So I think that effectively we have a housing crisis. We do need to build one, one point million units in the next 10 years, but none in the Greenberg. I think, by the way, this David, this that I'm proposing, any mayor and council could have done it without any mayoral powers, without any, any of these things. To allow houses to, to, to divide, it could have been done, but there have been some NIMBYs. NIMBYs is, is, is not in my backyard. People that oppose, they go to some public meetings and they start screaming. And then the government gives in because of the screamers, which is really shameful that the squeaky wheels are getting the oil. So people go to the public meetings and the elected officials, the city councilors and mayor, instead of doing what is right, they are doing is what these screamers talk. It's not even what people want because they have not done any real polls or any real citizen engagement or than some meetings attended by very few people when uh, five or, or, or 10 or whatever start screaming against it and then they back down. I think that if people go to the citizens and, are, and you are honest and you explain to them, everybody would have clear guidelines, clear rules, and I'm sure that most of the citizens would be on board. I think so too. Uh, and it's a Canada-wide problem. I mean, I, I lived in Vancouver for years and it was the same battle there. The The NIMBY battle was, was super intense. Of course, they call it quote-unquote character, right? This is the defense. It's like, well, we can't upset the character of the city, but really it's just a a lazy defense of the status quo. But I want to talk about transit next. I mean, you mentioned transit. Uh, and it's one thing to get folks into the city and to find them a house. Now we need to move them around. Toronto is building transit. Ottawa is building transit. Vancouver is building transit. Uh, and yet it doesn't seem to be enough. So, you know, what's the what's the transit bottleneck in, in our major cities and how do we overcome it? Well, first, the transit is that we are not building enough transit. Why are we not building enough transit? Because we are building the wrong transit, the wrong transit. So for example, uh, David Miller, who was a mayor of Toronto, came with a plan of transit city that was basically light rail and streetcars, but mostly light rail all across the city. And it was like $5.5 billion. And people said, are you crazy? Where are you gonna get that money? And then a few months later, there was a proposal of the federal level, the provincial level, and the city, including Miller, uh, to do a small section extension of the subway to Vaughan, to Vaughan. Very low density area, very low density, like 2.7 billion, 2.7 billion. Imagine, we could have done the best LRT in the world for about 300 million, and we would have 2.4 billion left to do Transit City. Imagine if Transit City, that would have turned the history of mobility in Toronto forever. Imagine that all of a sudden when David Miller ended, those 2.4 billion, so about 40, more than 40% of Transit City had been under construction. It would have been unstoppable. Instead, 
they put the 2.7 billion into the subway to Vaughn. So the first day that Rob Ford came to power, he said, Transit City is dead. And it was dead because they, they, nothing had been contracted. So, so, I, so, so that's, that, that is an example. Let me give you another example. There is a light rail on Eglinton West. Uh, and it was designed, contracted, everything above ground because for the people that are not from Toronto, Eglinton West is a gigantic road where you could fit not one LRT, two, three <laughs> LRTs because it's that wide. Well, one day, a few months ago, at the beginning of this year, Doug Ford, that is the premier of Ontario, said, oh, what if we put it on the ground? It's going to cost only $2.4 billion more. What? <laughs> and people allowed him. This is absolutely crazy. How is it that the presence of the universities are mute? The Most of the MPPs are mute. The newspapers, most are mute. Everybody, where are the leaders of the city? It's as if that money was coming from heaven. No. Imagine the same train, the same speed, fewer stations, because underground is going to have fewer stations, 2.4 billion more. And the mayor of Toronto said nothing, mm -hmm. nothing. Let's do more light rail across Etobicoke, across, across Scarborough. So those are the kind of things. We need networks. We need to be able to get from places. So just one line is not enough. We need a network. Same thing, that, that's on the west side. On the east side, the same thing happened. We were going to do 21 stops, LRTs, in Scarborough, Scarborough was going to have the best public transit probably in Canada. And then all of the Southern Rockford decided that subway, subway, subways, and change a 21-stop light rail that was going to be 100% paid by the province to having a one-stop subway, uh, which partly was going to be paid by the city. And then it became a three-stop subway. But, but again, so now with, with the three-stop subway, 13% of the people of Scarborough are going to have public transit. 87% will not. With the other proposal, 100% of the people were going to have. So, so, so that is the kind of thing that we need to have public transit that uh, is, has connectivity, that is affordable, and that has frequency. But you cannot have that if you don't have the density. So, so you, you started by asking about housing and now mobility. They, they are two sides of the same coin. So that is why people are not getting into public transit. People say, oh, it's money. It's not about the money. As I just mentioned, we are wasting billions by, poor, by, by that on the run and, and other things. So public transit is not working because we have not created the public transit that is uh, fast, that is affordable, that is connected, and that is frequent. And without those, people are not going to switch from their car to public transit. People will not switch for environmental reasons. Mm -hmm. People will switch only if it's more convenient and it's cheaper. Yeah, I'm so I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, the the car culture we've adopted is so deeply ingrained that you know getting people out of that requires us to make sure that what they're switching to is is something that can deliver the, their needs uh, but I'm, no 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 excuse me. it's not car culture it's not hmm. car culture people couldn't give a damn about the car people people would easily downsize from two cars to one or from one to zero if there was an option mm -hmm. the problem is that we are not giving people the option 
Yes. The people that are living downtown Toronto, they have options and 80% of the of the households do not have a car because they have an option. Mm-hmm. So 20% do, 80% do not. Uh, but as soon as you start getting into the suburbs and then public transit is not fast, is not frequent, is not connected, then people, instead of 80% not having car, it becomes to 80% having car or 100% because they don't have an option. It has nothing to do with the culture. Cars are very, very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. In Canada, as well as in the US, the the people that have a car, that use a a car as their mode of mobility are spending around 20% of their income in mobility, 20%. And if they are low income people, it goes to 30% of their income. So it's huge. Imagine low income people paying 30% on mobility and another 40% on housing. So they got 70% and they have not even bought a a, a piece of bread. Mm -hmm. So there is nothing you could do to make it, to improve the economic situation of a family more than allowing people to downsize from two cars to one or from one to zero. But the only way to do it is to have adequate public transit as well as walkability and bikeability. Also, we need to switch and the way how we live. We should be able to walk to all of our basic needs, uh, to the grocery store, to the restaurant, uh, to the library, to the public transit, to the park, to, to, uh, to the schools and so on. So, so we need to build those neighborhoods around that. So it's not, it's, it's not only changing the mode of mobility from that point of view, but also changing how we live. So it's it's a, a structural change. I mean, I guess the argument then is we need to change the structure and changing the structure will change how people behave effectively. Exactly. I, yeah. I, I think that infrastructure creates culture. Yeah. So um, I think that, it, that that if you do a really good public transit, it's going to change people. For example, in Copenhagen, in Copenhagen, the car was taking over in the 60s and 70s. And then there was the oil crisis and people started riding bikes and there was no infrastructure and children were being killed and there were huge demonstrations. And then they started building protected bikeways. Now they have a citywide network of protected bikeways and also low speed in the neighborhoods. Well, in the downtown, 60% of the trips are done on bicycles, 60 in the in, in the downtown. Citywide, metropolitan, metropolitan wide in Copenhagen is at 41%. Toronto is at 2%. Vancouver is at 3%. So we are way, 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 way behind. But why? Because they build the infrastructure. So people started using it. Every two years, they do a survey in, in, in Copenhagen. Why do people ride bicycles? Environmental reasons is never more than two or 3%, never. It's because it's convenient, it's because it's fast, and it's because it's inexpensive. Uh, that's why people, say they, those would be the same reasons why people would walk or bike or take public transit in Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver or Calgary or anywhere, is if, if we have those. People are not going to move from their cars to other modes uh, for environmental reasons. But that is the reality. Well, that, that's a good segue into my second last question. In a couple of minutes, I'm going to come to the last question. I want, I want to talk about parks. But in the meantime, I want to talk about streets because um, I, I walk pretty much everywhere I can possibly walk. It's my preferred way to get around. Uh, it was easier when I lived in Vancouver. It's slightly trickier now that I'm in um, in Ottawa South, but I try. Uh, I used to cycle more, but then I couldn't do it anymore because it was it was so unsafe that I had to abandon it. I almost got hit a couple of times by drivers, and that was the end of it. Uh, 
um, you know, when you were running and, and before, you talked about safe streets, safe streets for pedestrians, safe streets for cyclists, and presumably safe streets for motor or motorists as well. And, you know, you said that making safer streets isn't a technical problem, it's a political problem. And I'm curious what you mean by that. Well, because we know how to make streets safe. Almost on everything that we have been talking today, they are not technical issues or financial issues. They are political because we know how to, how to solve it. For example, we know that if a person gets hit by a driver with a car at 30 kilometers an hour, the probability of being killed is 5%. At 50 kilometers an hour is more than 85%. So that's why I was proposing that citywide, all of the neighborhood streets, all of them, should be 30 kilometers an hour. Why? Because we are gonna save lives. Also, we need people to walk for mental health, for physical health, uh, uh, for, 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 for social well-being, for, for everything. People don't like walking when the cars are going fast. Mm -hmm. People like walking when the cars are going slow. I mean, we must do whatever it takes to slow down the cars in the neighborhoods. Also, we know, for example, that uh, there are some intersections where there are more accidents, more not accidents, accidents don't exist. There are incidents because they can be avoided. The incidents. I promise that in the first two years, we would redesign and do the work in the 100 most dangerous intersections. So these are the kind of things that can be done. We know how to do it. If we have, we, we have in, in, in the suburbs, the streets are gigantic. The car lanes are about four meters wide or even wider when they could be only three meters. Mm -hmm. when we, we know that if the, the width of the lanes is narrower, the cars go slower. If the width of the lane is much wider, the cars tend to go faster. And, and, and that is not rocket science. All of the studies around the world that show, if we have trees, then they go slower. So we need to narrow some of those roads. We need to narrow some of those lanes. Uh, so, so that's why I'm saying that it's not a technical thing. We know what needs to be done to have zero. By the way, there are cities that are having zero people dead. Last year, Oslo. Oslo has zero pedestrians, zero cyclists, zero people in cars. Uh, why? Because they lower the speed in the neighborhood to 30 kilometers an hour. They also lower a little bit on the large arterials. They improve the intersections. Uh, that's that, that's why I'm saying, and I, I, I go even further than that. I say that whenever someone is killed in a traffic incident, uh, the people that have the power, the elected officials and city staff that had the power, to make that street safe, and they fail to do so, they are partially responsible. Uh, I mean, their there is to make those things safe. Why don't they do it? We know how to make it safe. They know how to make it safe, but they are not given a priority. Let me give you just one example. In Toronto, we have an elevated highway that is falling apart. To fix it was gonna be 500 million, the gardener. To tear it down and do a boulevard was 500 million. But no, the mayor came with this idea to tear it down, but rebuild it 100 meters to the north, like $1.8 billion. By the way, the difference, so that 1.3 billion additional, that is 13 times more budget than Vision Zero has for the whole city. So this, this change of construction, 
for, by the way, on Dark Gardener, people listening might think that that's really important for Toronto. No, and that is going to save three minutes to 2% of the commuters. 2% of the commuters. Everybody else is going to have zero impact. But for that, we're taking up 13 times more money than the citywide budget for Vision Zero. In other words, there is a lot of priority for those cars going through there. There is no priority to make the streets safe. A few years ago, somebody pointed out to me that on the upon the invention of the of the car, initially, uh, someone had to accompany it outside of it with a flag, and uh, cars had to yield to pedestrians. Which is, I'm not saying we're going to get back to that point where someone has to follow a car along with a flag to warn people a car is coming. But I do think slowing them down is a pretty good idea. And uh, it's simple and it's know. doable and it's not expensive. But I do think that we made a huge mistake a hundred and so years ago when the car came, maybe we should have developed two different networks of streets, some for cars and some for people walking and cycling. Uh, so but we say, oh no, it's new, it's an innovation, mm-hmm. let's do it. And we really split the cities all over North America and build highways through the low-income neighborhoods, uh, destroying our cities, our fabric. And I think maybe that should be a lesson now that we are having technology. With technology, we should say, hey, wait, we need technology mm-hmm. for people, not people for technology. Uh, but you know, we 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 need. To, there are possibilities to change. I mean, I, I think something that is really horrible is that we had COVID, which was terrible. Uh, and instead of moving forward, most cities are moving back. As an example, everybody saw images on TV and the papers and social media of cities where you before you couldn't even see buildings or mountains. And then the city said, "Oh, COVID, there is a crisis, lockdown." Please stay home. Don't don't use your car. Don't go out to work. Within a few days, not even a week, within a few days, the air became clear. People could see the buildings. People could see the mountains. Uh, It was almost as if God had sent a message. Hey, guys, if you want clean air, this is how you do it. Look, you you, you don't use your car for a couple of days, and the air becomes cleaner. By the way, every year, over 700,000 children die because of bad quality of air. Over 4 million get lifetime injury in their lungs. So that's what I mean is is, is not technical decisions, it's political. We know how to have clean air. Uh, Cities like Oakland, California. Oakland, California, in 24 hours, the mayor of Oakland, California said, all of the neighborhood streets are gonna be slow streets during COVID, slow. What does it mean slow? That is only for the people that live in those streets. Imagine them, how beautiful it is. And it was done in 24 hours. And the beautiful thing is that it was only 10 miles an hour. So only the people that live there on all of the southern, all of the neighborhood streets in Oakland, there was very few cars and the few that were, were very slow. So there was no noise, no mm-hmm. pollution. Uh, they were safe. And people of all ages and abilities, people with mental or physical disabilities were enjoying the streets. We need to remember that the streets are public space. They belong to them. Well, once COVID passed, the mayor asked people, do you want to go back to how it was? And they said, what, mayor, are you crazy? After more than a year of having clean air and safe streets and no noise, do you want us go? So over 90% of those streets stayed as slow on it. So if Oakland was able to do it, why not 
any city around the world. I mean, these are examples that that that, that we, we we should learn from each other, both uh, the bad ideas so that we can avoid them, as well as the good ones so that we can adapt to our cities and improve. So those are examples, and again, very low cost. What the mayor of Oakland did in 24 hours, it was a very low cost and very high benefit. I, on a related note, I saw a, a, a news item suggesting that in instances where parking was removed and replaced with patios, it returned exponentially more money uh, than the parking did. You know, people flooded to the streets and enjoyed themselves, enjoyed patios, enjoyed being on the streets, and in fact, made more money. Because, you know, business always, well, if, if you get rid of parking, then nobody's going to come here. It turns out lots of people show up <laughs> when you get rid of parking. Yeah, you uh, know, the listeners more must have clear that in a city, when we look at any city from the air, between 20 and 35% of the city area are streets. The streets are by far the biggest public space. But keep in mind, public. Public means that it can have different uses according to the time of the day, the day of the week, the week of the year. Uh, so it's not just to park cars. Uh, so, so I think that that was a really good example how it was they were able to do it. And it was it provided more healthier environments and happier people. Uh, and and that was also a nice example that it doesn't we don't have to go through COVID to come up with with additional options. For example, whenever we are going to repave a road, we should ask the people we are going to repave a road on a neighborhood. We should ask people, do you want the whole street of your in front of your house to be pavement, or do you want half to be pavement and the other half to be grass and do a linear park? I will say that a lot of people would prefer to have a linear park in front of their house where every children and everybody can go out and play than have a very wide neighborhood streets. Uh, we, we need to rethink. We really need to have a movement of moving from gray to green. Very quickly, because uh, we're running out of time. It's interesting, so I want to ask. On that note, you're the uh, first ambassador of World Urban Parks, a body concerned with urban parks and open spaces. Uh, you know, why is it that Canadian cities are such laggards on parks and public spaces, and and how do we fix that? Because I've got to say, having traveled large parts of the world, other people do it differently and better. Uh, people congregate in open public spaces, in squares, in parks, et cetera. But in Canada, we're so awful at it. What is it about us that that limits our, our capacity to build open, inviting, and accessible public spaces? Well, I think that the main reason is that we're not focusing on the benefits, on the benefits. We don't really, we're not understanding that the park has benefits to our mental health, to our physical health, to the environment, to economic development, uh, for everything. Uh, so we think that they are just cute, but nothing more than that. So I, I think we need to change that attitude. Uh, today, there was a park in Toronto that had been closed for four years, a small neighborhood park, and it was reopened after $35 million that was invested in upgrades. And the washrooms are still not winterized. How do we put $35 million into an existing park and we don't winterize the washrooms when even COVID showed us that people go to the parks any time of the year? So the reality, we need to change our mindsets. Uh, people want to use the parks. 
So when I say, for example, economic development, why economic development as well as housing and mobility and parks? Because today, anybody that is good at anything, if you are good at making pizza or you are a good nurse or you are a good car mechanic or whatever, you can live anywhere in the world. So where are you gonna live? Wherever you have good quality of life. That's why quality of life has become probably the most important tool of economic competitiveness because cities must try to retain their best people, to attract the best people because following the best people are gonna be companies, corporations. They wanna set up whatever they can hire people. I mean, Canada in the world stage, of course, Canada is very good and we are bringing about uh, half a million immigrants per year. Now it's at around 420,000, but it's gonna go up to 500,000. Well, we can either get the cream of the crop or the second tier or the third tier coming based on our quality of life. So we need to understand that parks are about quality of life. Also parks are magnificent equalizers. So we gotta think about that. And also parks are really good for our mental health. I think COVID was so bad in many things, but one good is that people started speaking openly about mental health. Mm -hmm. And people realized that being in the parks and in nature and trees, uh, it was gonna improve. So I think that the basic thing is that we have not raised the level of the discussion with parks to understand uh, what are so many of these benefits. And also in some cities, like in the case of Toronto, the decision makers have living houses with large yards. And on the weekends, they go to the cottages. They have cottages uh, two or three hours from the city. Uh, so they never even spend time in the parks. Uh, when I was running for mayor, I said, well, it would, it's, it's about time to elect a mayor that actually uses public parks in the leisure time, that walks the city, that rides bicycles, that takes public transit, because most of our decision makers do not, mm -hmm. do not. For example, in Toronto this year, the mayor went to a park in June and he was talking about it and someone asked him, why is it that the water fountains are not working? And he said, oh, half of them are, the other half will be, wor will start, will be working by July. Why is it that we are having the water fountains open in July and not in March or April? It's because the parks are not a priority. So I, I think we, we, we really need to rethink that because we need the parks. And for example, you also mentioned about the streets, the sidewalks, sidewalks. The sidewalks are almost part of the family of the parks because the sidewalks also need trees and benches and garbage and be level and be clear and be safe and have lights and so on but they are not, starts to snow and we don't plow those sidewalks. So we gotta manage our cities radically different. We gotta have those parks that are winterized. And by the way, the parks is not only the infrastructure, just as important as the infrastructure is the uses and the activities. Because sometimes I go to the cities and I say, oh, do you have walking groups? Oh, we don't have money. Do you have movies in the park? Oh, we don't have money. They don't have money for anything, but so they, it seems easier to find the millions to do the parks than the few thousands to make it work. But if you don't have those thousands to make it work, it's not gonna function. Maybe even in this park that I mentioned in Toronto that the city put the 35 million, maybe it would have been better to invest only 10 million fixing whatever was more urgent and spend the other 25 million in uses and activities of parks across the city, especially the low income areas. Mm -hmm. Because that is another thing that happens, David, is the lack of equity, lack of equity. For example, Toronto citywide has 28% three canopy. 
three columns. But in the wealthy neighbors, it's over 50%. In the low-income neighbors, it's between five and 10%. Why is it that we have such discrepancy? Why is it that we don't have similar tree canopies in all neighborhoods across the city? Same thing happens with the parks and the uses and the activities. You go to the parks in the wealthy neighborhoods, they have full of activities year round. You go to the low-income neighborhoods and they are practically empty not because they don't have the infrastructure, but because they don't have the uses and the activities. Well, we have to leave it there. I, I could talk about this all day, uh, so we'll have to revisit it someday. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. This was a fantastic conversation. I'm so glad that you were able to join me to have it. Thank you very much, David. And I just want to leave with, with a message that all of this is doable. It's not about the money. Let's not accept that. It's not about the money. We must learn how to create cities that are really affordable, that are equitable, and that are, and that are sustainable, where everyone, regardless of the background, is going to be able to live healthier and happier. I, I couldn't put it better. I absolutely agree, and I suspect a lot of listeners will, will agree as well, including some of those who are in positions of power who can make some of these things happen and, they, and for the people that are in power i highly recommend to do there's too many people that are wrong because they want to be mayors very few run because they want to do as mayors we know we need more people that want to do as mayor or do as commissioner or do a city manager than just be one take advantage of the opportunity and and and, and do uh, because all, all, all of this is, is doable and it, it, it's a fascinating opportunity. The population is going to increase by more than 50% in the next 30 years. We need to build those cities radically different. We need to also manage them radically different. We know what has gone wrong in the last 40, 60, 80 years. So we got to do it very different. Well, I'm all for it. And here's hoping that we do. Thanks again to you. And as always, thanks to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark and Aisha Jar, who make the show not just possible, but better than it would be without them. And thanks, as always, to you folks for listening. I hope you take this one to heart wherever you may be. It's a great time to advocate for a better city for you and for those who will follow you. So we'll leave it on that note and we'll see you back here in two weeks. <laughs>